Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Thanks for coming on such a rainy, wet evening. A very warm welcome from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm the director, and I am very pleased to have Francis O'Grady here in the next stage of our What Makes a Successful Brexit series of talks, um, um, which couldn't be more topical. And uh, the, the speakers in this series have very kindly been amending them to the day's events, as those, whatever, that, whatever that day is. Frances O'Grady needs very little introduction to you, but uh, as you know, she's uh, General Secretary of the TUC and, and has been that for uh, coming up for six years now. It is uh, well over five years. The first woman to hold that post and has done many things as well on both low pay and on indeed high pay, high executive pay and has uh, uh, set ourselves at, uh, at those causes. Um, with that, with welcome. Yeah. Um, tell, tell, us, tell us your version of what makes a successful Brexit. I will then ask you some questions, and I think we'll have a lot of questions here as well. Okay, thanks well, very much. Thank you very much, uh, Bronwyn. Um, thanks to Bronwyn, whose commitment and dedication to the Institute, I hear, comes, only, comes second only to your uh, dedication yes. to K-pop. And thanks okay. for the invitation to speak. Um, I understand that last week you hosted ERG member Bernard Jenkin. We did. Uh, and I suspect the TUC's view of what makes a successful Brexit may be slightly different. So just to warn you on that. But obviously we're just uh, 121 days from B-Day. And today the Chancellor finally confirmed that Britain will be worse off outside of the EU. Uh, the government's own advice suggests that there is no such thing as a successful Brexit. Even the softest version will have a negative impact on the economy. The hardest version will hammer us. And the latest independent analysis suggests that over a decade under Mrs May's deal, the economy could end up up to 5.5% smaller. Immediately after the referendum results, the TUC set out very, three very simple tests for getting a good, or perhaps I should say, the least worst Brexit. First, frictionless, tariff-free and barrier-free trade to save jobs. Secondly, a level playing field on workers' rights now and into the future. And thirdly, protection of peace and the Good Friday Agreement. Now, Mrs May has said that her deal is in the national interest. The difference is that the TUC believes that what's best for working people is best for the country. A few days ago, the Prime Minister held a Brexit briefing in Downing Street. It was attended by 100 business leaders and the number of invitations issued to trade union representatives, zero. That is just one symbolic illustration of how working people, their representatives, and the roots of their discontent are still being ignored. And whichever way they voted in the referendum, workers have plenty to feel discontent about. A decade of real pay cuts and freezes, pressure on local schools and hospitals, and a failure to tackle employers who exploit migrant workers, often on zero hours and agency contracts, in order to undercut wages. 
nor is the TUC impressed by the government's handling of discussions with the EU. Trade union officers are professional negotiators. And frankly, there are times when we have watched events unfold looking through our fingers. First, Mrs May triggered Article 50 without securing a consensus in her own cabinet, let alone a mandate in the country about the deal she should go for. And she pulled that trigger knowing that as each day passed, bargaining power would progressively drain away from her side of the table to the other side. Then there was that Lancaster House speech, which set out so many red lines and impossibilist demands, it would have made Leon Trotsky blush. And for unions representing six million people who live and work in the real world... The extent of ministers' naivety throughout this process has been breathtaking. All you would have to do is ask any of our truck drivers, our car makers or our border guards and they could have told them, yes, Dover is very important. (laughs) Yes, outside of the single market and customs union, manufacturing supply chains will be disrupted and that will hit investment and jobs. And yes, in Northern Ireland, unionists and republicans do tend to vote for different political parties. On Sunday night, of course, we had our first read-through of the divorce deal and the TUC applied our tests. The first problem that we see is that the political declaration on the future relationship is just that. It's a declaration with no legal status. So we're being invited to jump ship with no guaranteed destination or even a lifeboat. Secondly, trade will no longer be frictionless. So we want to know, how will the cost of trade be paid for? Job cuts, lower wages, higher prices, or perhaps a combination of all three? Thirdly, for the transition and the backstop, rights at work derived from the EU will be frozen in time. So no guarantee of workers' rights keeping pace with our European friends, no protection against unfair competition on the back of workers, and no effective enforcement mechanism for workers either. That leaves any future government free to rip up or dilute rights that really matter in everyday lives. Maternity rights, paid holidays, chupi, redundancy consultations. And those on the right of the Conservative Party have already made no bones about their desire to do just that, starting with an attack on safe limits on working hours and agency workers' rights. So the TUC is clear that the Prime Minister has failed to deliver a decent Brexit deal. And if it can't get through Parliament, the buck stops with her. She made big promises to working people and she's had two years to deliver on them. But at every turn, she's let the Conservative Party's politics take priority over the interests of working people. That's why we're in this mess in the first place 
and we are determined that working people will not pay the price. Now, Mrs May is, of course, and there is a massive lobbying exercise as we witness hour by hour, uh, Mrs May is telling the British people that the choice is her deal or no deal, although she has simultaneously told her hard-right MPs that the choice is her deal or no Brexit. Only one of those statements can be true. The common mantra, of course, is that there is no alternative. But that's not true either. MPs mustn't be bullied into voting for a deal that's bad for their constituents' jobs, rights and livelihoods. Theresa May should drop her empty threats and instead secure an extension to Article 50. That's the sensible way to buy us time to figure out a real alternative and it's what any responsible government would do. To coin a phrase, it's better to get a good deal than a quick deal. So my advice to Theresa May is simple. Write that letter seeking an extension of Article 50. Do it now and put a first-class stamp on it. We recognise that Brussels is unlikely to agree any significant extension to Article 50 unless there is something new on the table. And if Mrs May can't get her bill through Parliament, she has got limited choices. She could seek to renegotiate a deal that would command a majority in Parliament. And we believe that a deal that meets working people's interests and that is realistic about Monsieur Barnier's mandate could win support. But if the Prime Minister is not willing or not able to do that, then it is time for people to have their say, either through a general election or a popular vote on the deal. Now, I'll finish with this um, because Mrs May also claims that her deal can reunite the country. But that would suggest that the country was united before the referendum. And it wasn't. It's true that divisions were exacerbated by the referendum, but they were already there. And they will still be there, whatever model we end up with, unless the root causes of disaffection are tackled. So whichever way people voted in that referendum, and whatever happens on Mrs May's deal, the TUC will keep pressing for a new deal for working people. That means great jobs in the parts of the country that need the most, decent pay and fair shares for everyone. Action to stop bad bosses exploiting migrant workers or indeed any workers and a genuine end to austerity with real investment in schools, hospitals, broadband, transport and council housing. Now of course the kind of Brexit we get will make that job either easier or much much harder and while Brexit may be a mess it's not too late to clear it up there is an alternative. We can get a deal that puts jobs and rights first, that helps us create more decent employment and public services in places like Sunderland, Barnsley and Wigan. And wherever they live, give working people hope for the future, pride in their communities and the new deal at work that they have earned. Thank you.
Francis, thank you very much indeed, and thank you for addressing our, our question, our challenge, absolutely head on. Now, let me ask you some, uh, some things about it. You said uh, we've, what we've had today from the government, we've had a set of economic projections, which they finally delivered um, many, many months after we and many others have been calling for these. Uh, and, and what those have said is, is, is really very uh, direct, that there is not a version of Brexit sketched out in those uh, that is better economically for the country than what we've got at the moment. And you've talked in your speech about, about being uh, in favour of work, uh, you know, on, on the side of working people. Do you think then that all versions of Brexit are worse for working people than what we've got at the moment? I think, I think this is about understanding the roots of the uh, discontent and why we ended up with the vote that we did, which is that uh, what we do know, according to the Treasury, but also according to LSC, IFS, a whole range of bodies, is that uh, the harder the Brexit, the poorer the country, basically. It's as simple as that, and that any form of Brexit will have a negative Impact, but I think um, what lay behind many people's discontent and that sense of the traditional mm. two-fingered salute was what difference does it make to us if we don't get fair shares in the first place? So you know, which is why we believe very strongly, you know, that we it's not good enough to get back to business as usual. Um, we have to understand that something has to change in this country for people to feel they've got a stake in this. I mean, you know, we could talk about the, the history of the EU and attitudes towards it, but, um, you know, just to say we did campaign for Remain, the TUC campaign mm -hmm. for Remain, but I, I would also be honest and say that wasn't an easy decision. That you've got members, you've got a lot of members, a uh, lot of unions that are part of the TUC that were in favour of Remain, but not all. Not all. We had, well, yeah. we had three that weren't. Mm. Um, we had some who felt they didn't have uh, a clear position from their membership, uh, but we did unite around the campaign that we mm. ran for Remain, and we know that we, we did shift opinion in that. We ended up, we tracked it throughout. We trade union members pretty much like the rest of the public in fact um, started off where the public ended up <laughs> uh, but we got six in ten trade unionists voting remain but it for us it was a very short campaign um, and we faced some challenges in terms of uh, the official remain campaigns messages which seemed very business dominated Funnily enough, you go up to Sunderland and the fact that the boss was saying remain didn't always help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and from this point, you said you've, 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 you've um, made your pitch very, um, uh, very strongly for Theresa May to you know, post a letter, as, it, as you put it, uh, calling for an extension of Article 50. Yeah. Um, do you think that's something that Parliament would back? I, my sense is, who knows, who knows, but it's looking like uh, Mrs May's deal will not get through on the first vote. That's very clear. Uh, there's a big question, isn't there, about what amendments we'll see. Um, but if, if we look, and certainly at various points I felt like this is spiralling out of control, uh, it seems to me that everybody needs to take a deep breath recognise that the work hasn't been done to command a majority for Mrs May's deal, uh, that we have to think very deeply about not just what we want, but what's possible, and to do that we're going to need more time. Mm. 
Um, no, the, 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 that, that's a very interesting point and a very interesting position to have come down to. Uh, we had an interesting debate. Uh, the, the Brexit team earlier in the season, key members of Jill Rutter here typing, uh, live tweeting very actively. You don't have to tweet that bit, Jill. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and uh, Maddie, who does our, a lot of our parliamentary work, and Joe Owen at the back. I mean, we were all discussing this morning whether or not uh, Parliament would actually be uh, called on to uh, to uh, um, to approve the extension of Article 50, and came down to the point: well, at least it would have to approve any change to the withdrawal agreement and that date of March 29th in there. So hard for her to get round it uh, completely. But um, if, if you want the definitive answer on this, uh, follow the <laughs> IFG Brexit team as, as, as the in the in the coming weeks. Um, Let's move to some of the things that, assuming we get through this, 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 this immediate bit, what would you like to see from an immigration policy for Britain in the, in the future? Yeah. Well, we've always um, taken it, like everybody else, motherhood in apple pie. We want a fair system. Um, we took a very clear judgment that we uh, heard people's worries about uh, pressure on the NHS, pressure on local schools wages undercutting. Those seem to be the three kind of key areas where people were worried about... Uh, about the degree of immigration that we had and the degree of low-skill immigration as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, our trade union movement is always very clear. We never blame workers for low pay or lousy treatment. It's never the workers' fault. We have to tackle uh, the, the source of that problem, which is those bad employers. Uh, I mean, I've just... I've been spending a lot of time going around uh, Brexit voting mm. areas talking to our people, uh, whether current members or former members. So I was in Barnsley recently talking to 300 former miners who mm. had mostly voted Brexit. Now, there are people, they know that it's not the fault of the migrant workers who are being brought into a warehouse who were on lower rates of pay, meaning that their grown-up children were going into jobs that were more likely to be zero hours, more likely to be agency, more likely to be lower pays. So um, they, they were not, you know, I would certainly not describe them as having a racist intent behind their concerns about immigration. But they had lost faith that any politicians would do anything about it. I mean, how long have we been waiting for the Taylor report now? 18 months? Yeah. Uh, that was supposed to tackle zero hours. But we're very clear that the way to tackle people's concerns is about tackling those bad employers. We should be banning zero hours. We should be providing people with guarantees hours. Mm. We should have collective bargaining to make sure that we get the rate for the job. We should have equal treatment. Uh, you know, there's, we mm. should have more But should we be controlling our immigration from the EU? Um, you know, where, where, I mean, so you, know, you ask the black and white where, where yeah. the TUC's you know, views are on uh, freedom of movement... Yeah. Is that something you can answer? Well, from a very pragmatic perspective, I'm mm. interested in the fact that in many members of the single market, it's not free movement, it's the right to work. And the reason it can be administered as a right to work is because there is registration. Um, we're now moving towards that, whatever we think of it, this country is now moving towards that system. So people's concerns about... Uh, it's, it's okay for people to come if they're going to work, 
We could have taken that choice from within. We can take that choice from within the single market. We don't have to leave the single market to be able to control that. Right. So you feel that there's a position there for, 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 the, for the UK that could be still staying within the single market, but controlling yes. uh, immigration much more than, than, than the it UK be- has done. Effectively becoming so a right to work, yeah. which is the case in many other countries. Yes. Um, are you going to wait and see as these amendments take shape? Does the parliamentary debate before you decide what version of the future you'd like, or are you, are you in a position where you can stick your well, uh, flag on, say, a Norway option or something? Well, we've always we've always mm. said, and we've always been clear that we thought mm. that on balance, workers' best interests were served by staying in the single market and customs union. So I guess that's what others would call Norway plus customs union. Uh, I've met Monsieur Barnier on a number of occasions. I know that that option was on the table throughout from Brussels. That's the -the off-the-shelf option. That could have been negotiated around. That could have been the starting point. Uh, That wasn't the choice that the Prime Minister made. I think that was a big mistake. Why does the Labour Party find that option so uncomfortable? Uh, well, I don't speak for the Labour Party. No, 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 no. Point of um, d- description for us, because you put a lot of emphasis in your speech about, about workers' rights and, and, yeah. and, and what you've just described being very good for workers, um, given some qualifications which you've made about, about perhaps yeah. taking you know, a tougher line on registration and, and yeah. a movement of workers and so on. Um, and, and yet, you, you know, exactly what you've described well, has, I, has aroused a degree of discomfort, if I can put it that I, way. I think what's most important from my perspective is that we have a united position in the TUC. That's a common Mm. position across Europe in terms of the ETUC. And the Labour Party at its last conference, I think, um, you know, there's, there's a kind of clear common interest in terms of the priorities for a deal. Uh, You know, similarly with um, the Labour Party, uh, they've said they would put jobs first, we're pleased to hear that. Uh, they have no problem about workers' rights. We're pleased to hear that. And they've been clear about advocating a permanent customs union. Um, now, you know, to be fair to Labour, they're in opposition. Um, certainly they've had contact, obviously, with Brussels too, and they believe that they would be able to have a very different set of negotiations if they were clear about their priorities. And, of course, it's important. I mean, we lobbied for this. This is why it's in Monsieur Barnier's mandate, is mm. a, level, a level playing field on what's called social rights, which includes workers' rights, mm. uh, because that was something that the ETUC argued for, that it's not in the interests of workers in Germany, Italy or France to have British workers undercutting them on the back of, you know, worse rights at work. What's your opinion of the free trade agreements that we might or might not strike Mm. with the rest of the world? Does that feel like a big opportunity? Yeah, I'm so looking forward to this list being unveiled. not it's uh, I mean I think that again that's that was part of our broader consideration so we're all focused on the strengths and weaknesses of the EU model and for sure uh, we have our criticisms in particular that the social dimension has not been replenished and revitalized to face the modern challenges of uh, the 21st century world of work on the other hand look around the world it is the only trading bloc 
which has a clear social dimension. In other words, that says, okay, those freedoms for business mm. need to be balanced by rights and protections for workers. Um, so uh, you'll, you'll be aware that our sister union movements around the mm. world and our own analysis of trade deals um, suggests that many of them have been killing jobs, many of them have been dragging down standards, uh, that the, certainly the benefits have not accrued to working people. And we're also very conscious that whilst um, some politicians talk very um, optimistically about labour clauses in deals, uh, that those which are largely based on ILO standards, are incredibly minimalist compared to what we have now through the EU. And frankly, when it comes to it, and we've looked at this carefully, when governments are faced with the choice between uh, disrupting a trade deal and standing up for workers' holiday rights, funnily enough, we tend to lose out. So the enforceability of those clauses is also incredibly weak. Some people have talked about if we, if we end up with no deal, kind of end, end of manufacturing, end of farming. Does it feel apocalyptic to you? Well, I know, I know the NFU is incredibly yeah. worried about that um, and wasn't particularly reassured on Monday night either. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think there are those on the right who see Brexit as an opportunity in the way that they saw the 1980s as an opportunity, creative destruction, tear it up, um, see a new Singapore-type model rise from the ashes of a lot of pain and destruction uh, in terms of jobs and communities. Uh, uh, That, to me, seems uh, a very stupid uh, an actually cruel thing to do. We should learn some lessons from the 80s because that's what happened to those guys I was speaking to in Barnsley. Uh, you know, look at that age group who voted and why and what's happened to them over their working lives and you begin to understand exactly... We'd all be sticking two fingers up on that basis, I think. I think lessons have been learned a lot since the 80s. There was a paper, academic paper, The China Shock, a few years ago in the, in the States, looking at just how big the impact is on, on communities um, mm. of some kind of big external shock and that they don't bounce back, as economic textbooks would tell you, and everyone yeah. immediately retrains. On this note, as I suspect there are going to be a lot of questions and even quite technical Brexit questions, let's, uh, let's, let's kick off right here. Thank you. Well, could you one second for the... Um... Thank you. My name is John Dobson. I write for the... Sunday Guardian, that's the Indian Sunday Guardian, which is published in New <laughs> Delhi, not the Observer, just thank to make you, that point clear. Clarification. What is puzzling a lot of people is the argument that it's okay to come out uh, provided you go into the customs union and the single market. Um, now, many people can't see what is the benefit of doing that. I know the Labour Party keeps saying into a customs union mm. and a single market, mm. but that would be cherry-picking on steroids and would never be accepted. So why leave if you're going to accept those two lower agreements? Yeah, I think it was the 52%, wasn't it? <laughs> so, I, I mean, there's... So why aren't they arguing to stay in, in that case? The Labour Party. Oh, the Labour Party? Yes, I know you don't represent them. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, 
you can't square this circle. It doesn't make any sense. I, th- I, th- I think there is a challenge for all of us, which is um, a vote was had. I mean, I, I, I know this isn't um, exactly the same, but um, if, if and when we've run industrial ballots, the worst possible result is something like 52-48. You know, because you've demonstrated your weakness, uh, you've divided your membership, um, and uh, frankly, generally, in my experience, unions don't rush to walk their members out the door on the basis of that kind of vote. You think really carefully about what you're going to do and how you bring your members back together. I, I feel that stage never happened uh, in terms of kind of our political life in this country. Um, I was saying earlier to Bronwyn, mm. I think a very different style could have been adopted at the start, a more stateswoman-like style, recognising, being honest and truthful about the dilemmas that that presents for people in this country when you have a split down the middle. So we were clear for our part that we respected the results we pointed out it wasn't a landslide. It was clear, but this was not a landslide. And that presents you with a different set of dilemmas and choices going forward. How do you respect that result, but at the same time not disrespect the 48%? And how do you avoid a profound act of self-harm, um, which, as we know, will have an impact for generations? So... Um, Kind of for, for our part, it was looking at how we protect jobs and rights and single market membership and customs union membership seemed vital to that. Uh, if, if attitudes changed, and I think there are some signs, but not <coughs> enough to yet make me feel confident, but if, the public, if public opinion changed, well, you know, who knows what could happen. Uh, but given our experience with the polls, I think I'd be looking for something that gave me a bit more confidence than these, you know, it's just now the other way round. That doesn't feel like that gets us any further either. So, but I think that's why a number of people and organisations ended up in that territory of trying to think through um, whether there, there was an existing model that might begin to show some sensitivity. So, yes, you end up losing your vo- voice, uh, at the table, although actually in practice Norway has more influence than some people give it credit for, uh, we would keep our voice through the ETUC. Um, but some kind of sensitivity to the fact something has happened and you can't just ignore it. You've got to do something. Yeah. Thanks for that. You could see uh, the general election as Theresa May's attempt to include everyone. I mean, it didn't work out as no. expected, but it was... It was um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, again... Uh, yeah. Stateswoman-like, even if unsuccessful. Oh, I'll put to you. Yeah. Uh, uh, Nick Sharman, one-time TUC employee. Um, uh, one of the... You defici- never leave. It's like the Catholic you Church. Leave. You know, know that. <laughs> Stay. Um, uh, one of the deficiencies of the original Remain campaign was that there was no uh, reform agenda uh, about the European Union itself, Uh, certainly uh, one which the unions had worked across, uh, or the left, if you like, in general, had worked across Europe to come up with a different version. And I wonder if we have a new vote, um, whether a similar uh, campaign 
would uh, a Remain campaign would take on a reform uh, uh, agenda as part of it? And if so, what the TUC's both actions and thoughts about uh, such a Remain campaign would be? Yeah, well, as I said, why it wasn't an, an automatic decision for us, because this was on the back of... We hadn't had a significant new agenda around workers' rights. People took for granted the fact that holiday pay, they thought actually, you know, that was down to the UK government. The EU always got the blame, never the glory (laughs) for anything good that did happen. But also, of course, we just, as a workers' movement, been through the experience of observing the Troika's pretty disgraceful behaviour towards the programme countries, not least Greece, restructuring in Ireland almost exclusively on the back of workers' wages. So, uh, if you like, the emotion of what the values that a European social model was supposed to stand for felt pretty thin on the ground. Um, So I think you're absolutely right. From our perspective, as I said, it can't be business as usual. And that's a message that the ETUC, as well as ourselves, have been pushing really strongly, that don't think you can just get through this crisis and somehow that's an end to it. Why do we think we're seeing the rise of right-wing so-called populism uh, and the far-right in many countries too? Um, Why are people, why were people led down the path of uh, blaming migration for their ills? Why do people have this sense of powerlessness and lack of agency in their communities you know there are big challenges for us and uh, I mean I, I always remember God, with the official Remain campaign the first chair um, in front of the committee I think mm. saying uh, uh, leaving the EU would be terrible because businesses wouldn't have access to cheap labour and wages would go up and it was one of those moments <laughs> you know Thanks. You know, uh, and obviously we've since learned that uh, the calculation made by David Cameron was that he thought it was all about winning the Tory professional young vote, hence the messaging, hence the domination of business voices, and uh, an assumption that working class voters would stay at home. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I, I think as a, as a labour movement, as a board left uh, within the European Union still, um, I, I think there needs to be some serious reflection on a new agenda, uh, not just institutions, but what we stand for, that kind of refreshing and updating of 21st century values in a world that's quite different to the one that the common market was formed in. Um, you know, there is, I mean, it's obviously it's a complicated picture because I would also argue who else is standing up to the tech giants currently bar Brussels, mm. actually. You know, I mean, there are some important um, measures mm. taking place. We've got new rights, some new rights coming down the pipeline with the new social pillar, still very weak. I think there's intellectual work that needs to be done too in preparing the ground and some pretty urgent work in um, championing blue-collar workers. That's what we're for, as well as a lot of other things. But if we lose that, what are we for? And I think there has been uh, a sense of abandonment in many of the communities I'm visiting at the moment, not, not left behind, 
don't patronise people. They haven't been left behind like they've, you know, not caught the bus. They feel abandoned, deliberately abandoned. And I think we need to address that and have some answers for that. Thanks for that. At the back. Dave Neat, a lawyer and poet. I am um, fascinated by this subject and... Um, it feels like it could be phrased as a question, but it's presented as a sort of a topic. And um, another, uh, a, another way of phrasing that um, would be to say, what makes a successful membership in the European Union? That was never asked over successive governments. It would have been a good question to ask. What makes a successful membership? was never asked, it was never dealt with. Mm. It seemed like Europe was always used as an excuse why we can't do this and we can't do that. But now we're examining this question, what makes a successful Brexit? Mm. And I don't know if anything can be listed under there, but I'm not an expert. Mm. Um, And it feels like there was a very halting moment in all of this when... Brexit was voted for, and we were going to go ahead with it. And a non-lawyer had to remind us of the Constitution. Whatever we might think of Gina Miller, she reminded us, I think when constitutional law comes to be taught in this country, in every legal classroom, she needs to be mentioned, because we almost breached the Constitution. And this member of the public reminded us, and as as a result... A lot of hatred and uh, thoughts have been heaped upon her. But that seemed to be a moment where we should have said, hold on a second, do we really know what's going on? We didn't even know that we needed to consult Parliament. It had to go to the House of Lords. Yeah. So, so, so the question... You, me, do, do you have a question or do you want to make a point uh, about what makes us a successful Brexit? Either I, is okay. I, I know there's a question in there and I'm going to ask it now. Mm. Since we almost got it wrong and since... Uh, to articulate the answer to this thing is so difficult. In my profession, law, we have a number one duty is to not mislead the court. I agree, 52% said we must Brexit, and we must. But does the government have a duty not to mislead the public and therefore ought to be saying, I will deliver on your will, but I have to say, I can't mislead you. What we're doing is a tremendous act of self-harm. Does a government have a duty to, a, to the, its, to the, to the yeah. voters, even though they've voted yeah. one way and it's going to be delivered on, yeah. to mm-hmm. say there are dangers with this That's and it. not just present sunny uplands when before the referendum you were presenting it as a bad thing? How did you just switch overnight like that? I'm going, to, I'm going to capture that. Thanks very much. You've actually brought us straight to the day's news, which uh, was not a declaration of sunny uplands, but was a set of uh, <laughs> economic projections that were um, finally quite honest. Um, I, 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 but, uh, I do, I do think very, that's a kind sunny. of fundamental point, yeah. though. And at the risk of blowing our collective trumpet as a trade union movement, we know we've got flaws, but again, we've kind of tracked people's attitudes and to us. So people know that we campaigned for Remain. But even those who voted Brexit trust us to do our best to say it as we see it. 
uh, even if they don't agree, even if they, you know, voted Brexit, they trust us that we're doing our best to find a solution that is best for working people. And I, I agree. I think there was, again, something profound going on where um, this lack of trust of uh, politicians, mm. institutions, people in positions of authority, that, and also a sense that nobody was held to account. You know, people have had decades of people pointing the finger at Brussels. Uh, the people I've spoken to are not stupid. They know it wasn't all Brussels' fault. But they want their Westminster politicians to be accountable to them and to be held accountable to them. And as long as they could hide behind the skirts of Brussels, it felt like they're getting away with it. So, you know, your question about what would it be what would be a successful membership does raise those big questions that Nick touched on about reform and how, how we don't just settle for what we've got, how we have to have a vision and hope that we could create a union, which I tend to be in favour of, uh, between countries that was democratic, that was accountable, uh, that was prioritising its citizens' lives and trying to make them better. You know, a, a, a positive vision that inspires people rather than just a trading club. Thank you both for that. Thanks. Um, over here, and then I'm going to come right to the back again. Thank you. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, you've got two, two of you. We've got two microphones. All right. right here, here in the, a bit close in the front, then at the, at the wall, then I'm coming to the back. Conley uh, uh, Voice for Change England uh, from the third sector. Um, Francis, I spoke um, at the TUC Black Members Conference um, from the League perspective, and I was surprised at the depth of hostility to working class people who actually express the League position, and in particular... Yeah. As you indicated, um, I think on the day it was on the RMT who came out vociferously on the Leave side. I know you had a few problems with Unison, but they soon stepped into line. Um, my question, though, is in relation to the trade union movement, it's always been based on the notion of defence of workers' rights. Yeah. Why does it feel now that that position has to be outsourced to, use, to Europe? Yeah. In terms of the traditions and I'm a trade unionist yeah. of 20 years standing from a steward right through to a convener, why is it that the trade union no longer represents those basic yeah. okay. um, skills that I think inform yeah. um, what it is to be a trade unionist? And finally, just on the question of self-harm, I think to actually illustrate the position of levers as being a mental health problem is fairly condescending and patronising. For me, the question that was put had two sides to it in or out, and people voted uh, out because, not only because they were uh, peed off, but because they also saw the uh, possibility of actually giving it real expression to their vote and actually influencing the outcome. Mm. And I think we need to uh, give people more credit and just seeing it as a problem of uh, self-harm. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, I was refer referring to all of the reports which seem to show from different quarters, that the economy will take a hit, and we know that that has an impact on jobs, wages, prices, all the things we care about, as long as we get our fair shares. Um, but on the rights issue, you see, I don't see that as outsourcing at all. What we saw was trade unions across Europe 
pooling their bargaining power, the strong helping the weak, to get a level playing field across countries. That was something spectacular that maybe we as a trade union movement across Europe haven't taken enough credit for because it was a lot of hard work from generations before us. The reason why we have equal pay for work of equal value, so we got equal pay because of the Dagenham sewing machinist strike, we got equal value because unions across Europe joined together to campaign for it, argue for it, win it through the machinery. And the same was true on holiday pay. People say, oh, we already had holiday pay rights. They forget we had holiday pay rights in the wages councils and then the Tories abolished them. The only reason why millions, particularly of part-time workers, got paid holiday rights in the UK was because we pulled our bargaining power across the EU. So I think, you know, I think we should take pride in that. That was a union achievement and it was unions acting as internationalists to support each other. And it, when, when times were tough for us in the 80s, with Margaret Thatcher in power, and we could have fought all we tried, we might have been able to bargain it, but we wouldn't have got it for the vulnerable workers. We were able to get protections that we could never have done on our own. And we've been able to help other workers in other countries at other times. So, I, again, wherever we stand, whichever way we voted, I think we should take pride in what the trade union movement has achieved, not just as British trade unionists, but as internationalists. We probably have to pick this up. There's actually quite a lot of hands still up, um, but, but I hope you'll all stay for a glass of wine afterwards. We can keep this, keep this going next door. Uh, over, over at the wall, and then I'm going to come right to the back. Please. Um, yeah. Sharon Thrushaw from City University. Um, I understand that Parliament legally can't prevent a no-deal scenario. Um, the unions have supported a motion to strike in, in the event of a no-deal. Um, how would that ball get rolling? What would a general strike look like, and do you think it would be effective in preventing an, a no-deal situation? Sorry, I'm not, I'm not aware of what motion are you talking about. So we, we have a general council statement. Uh, we believe that the threat of no deal is an empty threat. We know that nobody wants that in Brussels or in Westminster. Um, it was primarily the Prime Minister trying to corral people with that threat to support her proposition. Um, the truth is, whatever happens, and our unions have been very clear on this, we will fight for ev to protect every job, we will fight to protect our rights, that's what trade unions do, whatever happens. Uh, but we know that it will get pretty tough. I mean, you know, um, again... What, what will get pretty tough? Well, if, if there was a look, no deal? Look at or... what's happening in the car industry. Yeah. Well, and any... Brexit scenario yeah. that does not put jobs first, and we yeah. don't believe this deal does. Okay. So in the car industry, we're already seeing investment decisions flow elsewhere. Uh, we're already hearing about plans for shutdowns and short-time working. I mean, this is real stuff. This is the stuff that mm. we have to do to try and protect people. Um, so uh, I'm not quite sure what you're referring to, but our collective position is very clear on what we believe. So you don't, you don't want it. Any of the Brexit team want to come in on whether Parliament can stop No Deal? Actually, better. Maddie. 
Okay, okay, grab, the, grab the microphone. Okay. So the position is that the default in our legislation, so domestic law and also EU law, is that we're going to be leaving on the 29th of March next year. So that's under the Article 50, um, sort of that part of EU law, and then also in the EU Withdrawal Act, which passed earlier this year. So basically something needs to happen if you didn't want to leave, if you wanted to leave without a deal, with a deal, sorry, or, or not leave or whatever other options are on the table, you do have to do something in Parliament um, to make that happen. So, and I think the challenge for, at the moment for the Prime Minister anyway is trying to find a majority for anything. And that is whether that's her deal, second referendum, you know, a general election, EA, FTA, whatever that is, the, the challenge is you need to find a majority for something in Parliament to... Or extension of Article 50. Yeah, but again, you'd have to amend amend domestic law to do that, and you'd also, obviously, the EU would have to agree to extend Article 50 as well. Yes, that's great. Okay, right at the back. Thank you very much. Hi, Catherine from King's College London. Francis, you mentioned um, that to the far right, well, not even that far right, and the Conservative Party people are being very explicit about what they're hoping to do to workers' rights. When you're talking to industry leaders, what impression do you get from them about... um, anticipation for deregulation um what what sense do you get about what they would like to see post brexit or wherever we end up yeah i I think the formal position of um big business representatives is is they're not looking uh to deregulate they're not necessarily looking to keep pace uh with the rest of europe either um but i think Again, the problem for us is we've been around this block so many times that when uh, a worsening of workers' rights is handed on a plate to employers, they tend not to say no. Uh, so, you know, we know some of their... We've had big struggles over things like the Swedish derogation, which is a big, massive loophole in the agency regs that allows some employers to get away with... Uh, using agency labour to undercut. Um, You know, again, business has lobbied very hard against our desire to close that loophole. So when push comes to shove, we don't rely on um, what's said uh, currently. Yeah. Is there one in the middle here? Okay, there, there. Towards the end, we have a few more, a few more minutes, and a few more. Hi, um, James Sibley from the Federation of Small Businesses. Um, so, my question is on the withdrawal agreement, and, and then kind of assuming it passes, and we get onto the stage of negotiating the future economic partnership, and assuming we don't stay in the single market, um, are non-regression clauses on social and employment policy enough for you, or would you prefer some kind of dynamic relationship, a la state aid? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're not contemplating failure, uh, but in practice, if we were to get to that stage, then uh, non-regression, no. Um, Because the whole point of a level playing field, whether it's a national minimum wage or, you know, between countries, is that we want to cut out unfair competition on the back of worsening workers' rights. And frankly, if we're in a situation, this is, I guess also relates to the business and workers' rights point, if we're in a situation where the economy was in trouble, where uh, tax takes for public services were declining, where uh, maybe uh, 
you know, the quality jobs were declining and so on, then uh, the temptation to deregulate your way out of this for those who hold those views would be very, very great. Here in the middle. Uh, David, that's you. Yeah. David Haney, House Lords. Um, on the immigration issue, could you just say whether you think your membership understand how far short of the possibilities within free movement as we currently are the government is in making use of flexibility like other member states have done like the Belgians and the new postal work, posted workers directive and so on. Do you think they understand that there is in fact within free movement a lot more that the UK could be doing? This is rather important both in respect of the EEA option, but also in respect of Remain, because yeah. it's common to both of them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it would be nice to know whether you do. And just as an observation, if I could, about the parliamentary <coughs> side of things, even if the government, which looks extraordinarily unlikely, mm. were to carry Mrs. May's mm. um, a deal uh, on the 11th, mm. they've still got a big chunk of implementing legislation which yeah. will offer opportunities, for example, to remove the 29th of yeah. January mm. because you're going to have to repeal quite a lot of yeah. the Withdrawal Act mm. uh, because there are things about uh, the, the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice g going on the day we leave, which we know have to be removed because yeah. that won't go until at the very earliest December 2020 yeah. and so on. So there is quite a lot of scope there. That's just an observation but on the immigration one. Mm. Mm. Um, I think my gut reaction would be that in terms of our shop stewards and reps and officers, I think there is quite a good understanding. Certainly we've been kind of pumping information out on practical things we'd like to see, including, um, like I say, an end to austerity would help. Um, but, you know, pumping money in uh, to those areas that have got genuine concerns where there's been large-scale and rapid um, migration. Of course, in many of those areas, the traffic's the other way right now. Um, and a good understanding, because of course people know in their workplaces you know, what the situation is in the NHS, where increasingly we're seeing a recruitment and retention crisis, not least because about one in ten of our doctors, I think, come from other EU um, member states. And if people are going home, that leaves real problems in our public services, in the car industry, manufacturing, people understand uh, the importance of those uh, multinational teams. Um, I think. I think the uh, the other side of the coin is. Um, I, I think. I think we've got more work to do amongst our membership, basically. Um, what kind but, of work? Um, I think in terms of people feeling confident about what the answers are, could be, what, what's the kind of um, system that people would feel uh, comfortable with, would feel is fair uh, and decent and uh, avoided some of the uh, downside of migration that they have seen in their real lives. We don't deny it, others do. But, you know, telling people that statistically it's good for Britain isn't great if you know, this building site is deliberately hiring people on worse terms and conditions. Um, but 
I mean, I was, I was going to say the, the, the other side of this debate is I have to say I've always been personally very, very cynical about the government's promise to take back control of our borders, not least because the only bloody land border we've got in Ireland, um, clearly the uh, backstop arrangement is not about controlling. Uh, so actually there are real issues about a potential growth of an informal economy there and elsewhere on the back of that. Um, and I've always believed that the government would be handing out visa schemes like confetti if it could, uh, by that point, quite desperately I would have thought, trying to get trade agreements with other countries. So uh, I think there needs to be a bit more of a debate about what happens mm. next in those two scenarios. Um, and we've got more work to do on that. But maybe in the country more generally, again, somebody talking about the need for more honest debate. Well, you know, when the Prime Minister went out to India, it was made very clear to her uh, that their government would want an arrangement on Labour. So you want the trade deal? It, you know, any any trading agreement is going to involve some deal on immigration. So let's let's be honest about this, and then talk about how do we make sure that it's a fair system for everybody. Uh, and that goes to the EU, the trade deal with the EU as well. Um, I think we're reaching the. Any other desperate uh, last points to get in? Uh, no, I think we've we're uh, reaching the end, and I don't want to keep people from sort of uh, continuing the conversation next door. I was struck by the, one of the last points you made, though, about how uh, people may feel that an argument um, about the economic good for the country overall doesn't touch them. We had Andy Holding, the Chief Economist of the Bank of England, making this point eloquently here, of saying this is why economics doesn't work in politics that well, because it may well be true, uh, but it doesn't speak to people's uh, individual circumstances. Let me just ask you, really finally and, and, and briefly, you talked about work to do, uh, conversation with the people, honest conversation in politics. Do you think your members are, have changed their views in the last two years? Um, I think I think definitely people have got more worried as as if you like the reality of um, the options is kind of beginning to unfold. I, th I think I get a sense. I do get an appetite for a say, like I say, you know, for any trade an union. An appetite for a vote, then. Well, any trade union negotiator mm. knows number one, you get your mandate, but number two, you always go back for a vote on the deal. So for us, that's seen as that's what we'd expect to happen. <laughs> Okay, well, on that note, as you said, you're professional, you're professional negotiators. You have been looking at these negotiations with a professional eye. So thank you for that uh, final tip. Francis O'Grady, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.